you have a choice to make. Are you going to listen to the news that is being proclaimed to you? Or are you going to treat it as one option among many for how to potentially live your life in a fulfilling way? Those are your options. And which do you think the Bible is actually saying? Welcome to the Belfast Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Byler, in the most Saul Goodman outfit I could find. And so, as we as we finally dive into the divine conspiracy, Daniel and I are going to use a lot of the concepts from chapter one here in the next few episodes to be the launching pad for some other material that I think is uber important. It is utterly important to understand as we go go about diagnosing our culture, this cultural moment, what exactly is happening in our world, and what we can do about it, how the gospel, the good news of Jesus, interacts with all of that. And so I read extensively in this series from Leslie Nubian's book, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. I would encourage anybody out there who finds any of this interesting to go buy it. Um, and so... As always, I hope you guys enjoy what we're doing here. We're just kind of wetting the appetite in this episode, setting the groundwork for what uh, Willard has to say on some subjects, and then we'll move into this cultural moment next week. Um, If you guys like what we're doing here and you aren't yet subscribed, please subscribe down below. Uh, If you would like to, some of you might be aware I'm going on a trip to Oxford, England this summer with my school. I need some financial support to help guarantee that I'm going to be able to go on the trip. If anything that we've done has been of edification to you, please please consider donating. Any donation over $5 gets uh, access to special content I'm going to create as a result of the trip. And so that will be down in the description below. You can rate review us on iTunes and email us at BelfastPodcast.com or follow us on Instagram there. And as always, I hope that this is edifying, fruitful, and challenging. Welcome to the Belfast Podcast. I'm oh, I'm your host, Luke Byler. That's what happens when you have a microphone. Um, we are continuing our discussion about the gospel. And we've landed in a really interesting place. I mentioned a few weeks ago, I think prior to recording, that we rearranged everything because we found that we had to have this conversation first. And now we've done that again, realizing that we have to have this conversation first. And a lot of the trouble with it is that we were making the episode on assumptions that we hadn't made clear to the audience. I think that's a correct way to say it. So we're going to try and track the line of thought until we get to where we're going. Now, where have we been? Well, we've been talking about the gospel. We're talking about the word gospel, euangelion, how it means good news, how that's a term that was actually borrowed from the 
broader culture of the gospel writers to proclaim a birth of a king or a regime change. And then we went on to investigate justification. What does it mean to be justified? What does it mean to, and the question we begged, I think through most of that whole episode was, what happens when we confuse the consequences of the gospel for the gospel itself? We'll continue to talk about that in the weeks to come. When we first started the Evangelion conversation, good news. I referenced N.T. Wright's book, Simply Good News, Why the Gospel is News and What Makes It Good. Now, I want to retread some of that because it, it sheds light on the current problem. What Wright points out is that many times when people hear the gospel, the good news, what they're actually getting is good advice. Now, good advice is not a bad thing. It is good to get advice. But advice is not news. Advice is something that someone says that you could take and your life might be better for it. But that's the thing. It's an offer. It's you can take or leave, and you could say you can take or leave the gospel, sure. Um, or you can take or leave salvation, sure. Um, but news, as he describes, is something that has happened because of which the world is different. You can't just take it or leave it. It's a reality. Not my president. See how that works for you. You could say it then, you can say it now. You know, see how that works out for you. Um, so the trouble is that when, as I've been doing this, as I took my New Testament class last semester, my professor almost had, it was pretty smart. I actually said, asked him at the end of class, when our semester was over, we were talking about, you know, kind of our reactions to the course, because it was the first time he taught this specific thing at the school. Um, I asked him, uh, Dr. Lear, did you just have us read through the whole New Testament? We didn't even realize it. And he was like, I think I just had you, I think I skipped like a book. And I was like, well, maybe you should just have in the future, just have everyone read the whole New Testament so they can say, in my New Testament introduction class, I read the whole New Testament, which I think is pretty cool. Um, now, as you read through the Gospels, as you read through Acts, as you read through Paul, as you read through what is proclaimed about Jesus, what Jesus says about himself, what Paul says about the implications of Jesus in his ministry, his death, his resurrection, ask yourself this. Does this sound like advice? Can I take or leave this? Or does this sound like the description of reality? I think more often than not, you'll see it's a description of reality. What else are the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are this group and this group and this group, for they will get X. 
descriptions of reality, descriptions of the kingdom reality. What else is Jesus bringing if not new reality, if not new creation? Is that just advice or is it news? Is it some? Is it something that's happened or is happening because of which the world is different? Now, I was having a conversation with, what, what else are the parables? The kingdom of God is like. Sounds like a description of reality. It's not advice. It's how you operate if you're in the kingdom. Now, I was talking to a friend of mine at work. Freshman in college, she's 19 years old. I say that to say she's younger than I am. She's, you know, in the generation below me, right? Um, obviously has a way different life than I do, but she grew up in the church, has, you know, gone to college, kind of left the whole church scene. Um, what started the conversation was she jokingly made a reference to, um, I'm just building my testimony. <laughs> which I thought was pretty humorous, um, made me laugh, even though it probably shouldn't have. Uh, but we started talking about church and she gave me you know, what she thinks of as the function of church. And it all came back to things like good advice. It all came back to morality. It all came back to acting a certain kind of way. You know, and she would say things like, well, you know, my mom, the church, the God thing that does, that does it for her. She likes to pray. I like to meditate and be mindful and, you know, focus on myself and how I can be a better person and how I can, you know, be more accepting and, you know, all of these things. And so, you know, if the Christian thing makes you have good morals and makes you act as a good person, great for you. But, you know, I've, I've gotten it a different way because I, and she basically was saying, well, I think that's the point. And my, we didn't get too far into it, but my only really comment with her was, you know, I find it really interesting that you keep phrasing religion or Christianity as um, a moral set. And she's like, yeah, well, isn't that the story? It's like the, it's, you know, the proclamation of morals and what you should do mixed with stories about what that means. And I was like, not really, but okay. And and so I said, you know, I just keep thinking of my faith not as a set of moral propositions. Um, and I have apologetic reasons for that, which is why we're doing this. Um, but again, what she kept coming back to was religion is mainly just good advice. You can take it or leave it. My mom prays. I do yoga and meditate. But if that leads to the same outcome being mindful, being a better person. It's all the same. That's good advice. That's moralistic therapy. That's not news. That's not something that's happened because of which the world is different. Those are different things. And if this 19-year-old girl thinks, and we'll get to this later, this is directly tied to chapter two and and Dallas Willard, she's rejecting what she thinks is the gospel, but she actually hasn't rejected the gospel because she's just heard a bunch of good advice 
and some moral standards, but it's not news. So you can go on, Daniel. So that's, uh, sorry, to make the final leap here. So we've been trying to redefine gospel, good news, good advice, making that distinction for you guys. We've been talking about because of we mix the gospel with its implications, which is what this girl is doing, right? These are the implications of how you live if you're a Christian. Oh, then that's exactly how you become a Christian. You live this. No, that's not it. Why do I feel this uh, tension? Because, well, you know, if you just believe the right thing, then you'll be okay. You'll have eternal security. Or if, you know, I just get you to act a certain way, then you'll be, that's what she's heard all her life. But I feel this tension and you might feel this tension now if you start questioning this. Okay. Am I just preaching something that's good news or is it really like, am I really preaching something that's news? Like giving people a declaration of something that's happened or is it, is it just advice? Why do we feel this tension and why do we always feel like the world preaches to us, but we can't preach to the world? Why, Why do we feel this? And why especially do we feel this in Western pluralistic American societies? Why do, yeah, but if you just this and that, you know, but if they just believed, why, why do we feel this? Well, hopefully, hopefully today we're going to flesh out some of why we think that is with the help of people much smarter than us. So I'm go ahead. Okay. Um, <clears throat> well, one thing that you you pointed out there that I thought was really interesting, and a callback to the conversations that we had on justification, um, was well, isn't that just saying, oh well, this helps you be a better moral person? That's an objection you raised when we had that conversation. Isn't this framework just saying okay well this just helps you become a better moral person and you can get that anywhere but if that's really not what the gospel's about or if that is a consequence of the gospel as we've been consistently framing it not the gospel itself then we have a little bit more work to do um, <clears throat> so we thought it would be appropriate to read through a few examples from scripture of the gospel itself or things directly related to its proclamation. So we'll start with Matthew 28 uh, verses 16 through 20. Now the 11, sorry, no, I'll, I'll keep repeating this question throughout the episode. So if this isn't stuck in your head, I did, I, I didn't do my job. As Daniel reads this, like I said, ask the question, is this just good advice or does this sound like news? Starting in verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. 
And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So, is it news or is it advice? All power and authority is given to me and I give it to you. That seems as though it's describing a state of affairs, a way in which the world is different. Go, therefore, react accordingly. React in response to that declared state of affairs. Do something. Be something different. It's what we were talking about with our conversations on justification. Anything to add for the next verse? No, go on. Philippians 2, 6 and following, or 5, excuse me, 5 and following. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed him, uh, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Interesting. That sounds like a whole lot of people responding to the actions of Jesus, the Messiah. Responding in accordance to something that has happened, whether they like it or not. So, one so why more. does my, go ahead. No, 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 I was, you, you go. I was just going to say, so why does my coworker <clears throat> frame her whole growing up experience in church as an amalgamation of moral proclamation? That's a good question. Are we, I mean, to, to use the phrase that I Things used. that she could take or leave in her life or find somewhere else. To, to use the phrase that I used um, a couple of episodes ago, are we really evangelical? If the term euangelion, good news, gospel, comes, uh, comes to us in the form of 
evangelical, are we really presenting that good news properly? I think not. I think we treat it as advice when all the while it is something far more important. So unless you have anything else to add, last, last sec selection of verses. Now I would remind you brothers, oh, sorry, this is uh, 1 Corinthians 15, one and following. Now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in- Good news. Yeah. So the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the wor word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So that typology that we talked about. That he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he, he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And I could keep going. But notice again, the way Paul's talking about this is not so Jesus said a few things about the way you should live and you know it'll kind of help you out along the way and it's probably good if you hear him out um, your marriage might be better for it your marriage your finances your, your relationships with those around you you know it's it's going to turn out better for you if you pay attention to the advice that he's given. No, Paul's saying something happened that changed the way things are. And you have a choice. Right? In which you now too. stand by which you are being saved. And if you hold fast to the words I preach to you, unless you believed in vain, you have a choice to make. Are you going to listen to the news that is being proclaimed to you? Or are you going to treat it as one option among many for how to potentially live your life in a fulfilling way? Those are your options. And which do you think the Bible is actually saying? Anything more to add? No, you want to move on to Willard? Yeah. <clears throat> so. I, I will add one thing. Okay. Again, again. And this is just three examples we could have 
we could have filled an episode with all of them more multiple episodes if these proclamations of what christ has done because of which the world is a different place are what is proclaimed as good news in the bible a reality that has come upon us because of which things are different i.e the kingdom of god Why do so many people just see Christianity as a a, a mixed up a, a grab bag of good advice? Why? Well, why is it treated that way? Why have we treated it that way? Why do I feel that tension in talking about Jesus and proclaiming? proclaiming the gospel to other people and sharing what I believe. Well, it's because of the state of the culture in which we live. So we're going to explore some of that. What is the, what is this cultural moment? I'll come back later. So this is from um, well, where we should start when doing a book study, the beginning of chapter one, under the heading, Life in the Dark. <clears throat> Recently, a, plot, uh, a pilot was practicing high-speed maneuvers in a jet fighter. She turned to the controls for what she thought was a steep ascent and flew straight into the ground. She was unaware that she had been flying upside down. This is a parable of human existence in our time. Not exactly that everyone is crashing, though there is enough of that. But most of us as individuals and world society as a whole live at high speeds and often with no clue of whether we are flying upside down or right side up. Indeed, we are haunted by a strong suspicion that there may be no difference, or at least it is unknown or irrelevant. Very poignant words. So Luke, what's he describing there? He's describing pluralism. We fly upside down, well, because every option is as e equally viable as the next option. So what direction are we going? Well, we'll talk about that soon. What has seemed to become the, uh, the, the controlling mechanism, but we haven't got there on accident. But we're flying upside down, that tension that you feel because well, who am I to say that my worldview is more valid than yours? If we're just talking about how we should live our lives. Who am I to tell you how to live? On what basis am I making such claims? And if the gospel is just advice, it's just another option.
that you can find somewhere else. You can pray or you can meditate and do yoga. Makes no difference if the outcome is the same. Therefore, which direction are you flying? Is in that scheme, is there a right side up? Or is it all upside down? There's no object to orient yourself against, mm -hmm. right? Because just another option among many means that no matter what way any of the options are oriented against you, with you, in relation to you, they're all equally plausible. So there is no right side up or upside down. We simply can choose to be whatever we want to choose to be and be in whatever way we want to be. Because if there's no up and there's no down, one, what's the point of arguing about up and down, about right and wrong? And two, there's no objective measurement. You can't, you can't talk about your relationship to other objects because it doesn't matter. This very quickly devol devolves into conversations about the objective world, which we're having a bunch of those at the moment. Yeah. And have been for about... 80 years, 90 years. Now, yeah. we you want me to read that next section before new begin? Yes, yes. Go ahead and do that. And one thing that I want not to stretch the analogy too far, yeah. but keep in mind, he's starting with this idea of flying upside down, thinking that we're going one direction, but we're really going somewhere else, which implies that there's a direction to go, as you just said. But you could then you could also say, if all my instruments of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? If all the instruments that tell me where I am are no valid than another one, then where am I? Am I upside down or am I right side up? If all of those options of things that orient me are just advice, if I'm at the buffet and it's all food, and it's all of equal nutritional value, what difference does it make which one I pick? What is the instrument of orientation? What's going to tell me? What's going to accurately represent reality so that I can navigate and be in the world? All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Sounds like an orienting principle. Sounds like some news. Therefore, go and do. That's something that has happened because of which the world is different. So then, it should affect you in this way. The gospel and its consequences. But what happens, again, when all the orienting devices 
are merely the same thing or disconnected from how we act. So yeah, you can go on. So real quick, um, <clears throat> this is just an analogy that came to me as you were talking, um, kind of based on Willard's analogy. <clears throat> and it's one that um, I've had a, a slight critique of the sci-fi genre um, of movies specifically for a little while. And this is more of a, a goofy thing than anything else. Um, but I find it super interesting that whenever, you know, we're watching Star Wars or Star Trek or, you know, pick another sci-fi where ships, spaceships are battling each other. They're always depicted as having the same orientation of up and down in space even when they enter the battle, right? From, let's say they're jumping out of hyperspace. And I think that's because, one, that's really unrealistic, right? If we're gonna make all of the assumptions of, um, we're gonna suspend disbelief enough, that's just one of those things that's always kind of, I haven't been able to suspend my disbelief of that because you're coming from opposite ends of the galaxy, supposedly. And you're ending in the same same place to fight someone else, and you just so happen to be oriented as though you're on a planet with up and down and right and left all being the same thing for you. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Now, how I think that relates to this is I think one of the reasons that filmmakers do that is because we as an audience need that sense of spatial awareness and congruity in order for it to look one visually pleasing and two to be able to tell what's going on mm -hmm. but we're in a philosophical space right now where the ships have come in and one's facing down and one's facing like an angle and nothing is looking the same and i think that's one of the reasons why in our philosophical debates were two ships passing in the night. We completely miss each other because we're speaking different languages because it's just one option among many and there are no orienting principles. There's nothing look, that we can do. Just look at the current debates about legislation. The, at least the major, how it's been construed in the culture. Now I have a little bit deeper critiques of some of the fallout of this that are a little scary, but I, and I've had friends of mine who are not Christians say, yeah, the two sides can never talk because they're literally talking about different things. Their orienting principles are of different matter, let's say. They are upside down and right side up and backwards and left and right. Like, yes. But again, who's right? Well, if it's just another option. All right. And so yeah, what causes this disconnect? <clears throat> How do, you, how do you get here when you're, well, Willard can, can describe some of course, the Newbegin will do some more. So Willard, um, a couple sections after his 
introduction to chapter one um, on page nine under why be surprised he says um, but if indeed there is now no body of moral knowledge in our culture then a number of things highly position uh, another a number of things highly positioned people express surprise about are not surprising at all and so he goes on to talk about a specific um, Harvard professor um, in the paragraph below that. His essay was occasioned by an encounter with one of his students over a moral insensitivity. Is it hard for him to say immoral behavior of another student? Some of the best and brightest at Harvard. This student was a young woman of a Midwestern working class background where, as is well known, things like right answers and ideology remain strong. She, um, she cleaned students' rooms to help pay her way through university. Again and again, she reported to Coles, the professor, people who were in classes with her treated her ungraciously because of her lower economic position. Without simple courtesy and respect, and often were rude and sometimes crude to her. She was repeatedly propositioned for sex by one young student in particular as she went about her work. He was a man with whom she had had two moral reasoning courses in which he excelled and received the highest of grades. He goes on and at the start of the next section, um, in talking about um, someone named Bach as well as Coles, the professor. Now, both Bach and Coles were widely and justifiably recognized as people of fine character and intellect. They have a large measure of concern about the practical consequences of a culture that has accepted the view that what is good and right is not a subject of knowledge that can guide action and for which individuals can be held responsible. They have no way of dislodging this view, nor I think would they want to dislodge it, but they do not seem to realize the total futility of resisting its practical consequences without dislodging it from the popular as well as the academic mind. This world in which you can have knowledge, but it has no effect on how you live. It's abstraction of morality, mm -hmm. right? Life disconnected from morality. We have this idea that you can have moral knowledge and yet somehow that moral knowledge doesn't actually have any implication on the way you behave. There's a, um, a department at my university excuse me, um, called the, I guess, the Department for Leadership and Character. And one of its focuses is on how to instill character traits that manifest behavior in students. Because what they're running into is a problem where we have a bunch of morally loaded conversations and then students don't go out into the workforce and into the world and behave morally. We can use the fancy terms all day long, 
but we don't, the system of education isn't producing moral people. It's producing people who can have conversations about morality. And that's exactly what Willard is pointing to in the first chapter of The Divine Conspiracy. So why is, and you can say that that is the case because every option is of equal value. So why would I put one over the other and integrate it into my life? Why would I act as if it is a proclamation of how I should act or how the world is? This is chapter, chapter two in the Gospel in a Pluralist Society by Leslie Newbegin. Hopefully, I, incur, I convince you to read this book once we're done with this episode. This is chapter two called The Roots of Pluralism. So he's just, he's again trying to hit on this question we're asking How did we get here? He says, the strange split between we know and we believe is to be the theme of my third chapter. Here I want to look at the origins of the split. Everyone knows, and any investigation, the answer you get will depend upon the questions you ask. And, and the whole vast enterprise of trying to understand what human life is and what the world is, the questions we ask will be determined by our interest. The spectacular success of the natural sciences in the past 300 years has been due to their concentrating on tracing the cause and effect relationship between happenings and setting aside the question of purpose. There's a good practical reason. Purpose is a personal word. People entertain purposes and seek to realize them. Things, inanimate objects, do not have purposes of their own. Inanimate objects, such as a machine, may embody purpose, but it is the purpose of the designer not its own. He skips down. Judgments about what is good or bad can only be personal hunches. He's describing the state of what it means to live in a pluralist society. Judgments about what is good or bad can only be personal hunches. That is, they have to do with purpose and not function. Each person will be entitled to her own. They will be, as we say, personal beliefs, prayer or yoga. And since there is no objective fact by which to test them, pluralism operates. If on the other hand, it were a fact, that the one who designed the whole cosmic and human story has told us what the purpose is, then the situation would be different. That would be a fact, a fact of supreme and decisive importance. It would be news. Our society does not accept it as fact. It is not part of the plausibility structure. In his runaway bestseller, The Closing of the American Mind, 
Alan Bloom, a Chicago academic philosopher, had described this resulting situation in the academic world as he sees it, a world where relativism and subjectivism reign. Well, I can do what I want, even if I have moral theory, because it doesn't matter. It's all the same. Bloom finds as the most significant sign of the fact that the language of values has replaced the traditional language of right and wrong. He traces the back through Max Weber to Nietzsche. Nietzsche, he says, was the first to realize that the operation of the modern critical principle could make it, could make it impossible anymore to speak of right or wrong. The factual ontological basis for using such language has been removed. There could only be personal choice. And what could guide the choice except the will? We choose what we want, so we are left with the will to power. This, it seems to me, perfectly explains the dichotomy of our usage between what we call values and what we call facts. And I like this definition. Facts are what we have to reckon with whether we like them or not. Values are what we choose because we want them, either for ourselves or for someone else. News or advice? Something we have to reckon with, whether we like it or not, or something we can choose for ourselves or someone else. So oh, it's just good advice. Anything to add? No, I think that's that's perfect. Um, he talks about will to power a little bit there, and in that um, in that conversation, I think it's when you read this to me that um, a few pieces of a puzzle that I've been trying to fit together in my head previously about that phrase kind of came into focus. If, as we've been saying, you can have values or you can have facts and where we put the gospel in relationship to these things, right? Values, you can choose whether or not to have certain values. Facts, it's like news. You have to deal with it. If everything is just values and there are really no facts, then the only thing that we would ever perceive as facts are what someone else's power has imposed upon broader society. But if there are actual facts, then it's not necessarily the case that we have to that, that things can necessarily be imposed always, right? And so there's this, this struggle of thinking about power as either the ruling principle or something that can merely use the way things are. And that I think is a major debate in our society currently because of this exact division. Is, is it that the powerful get to choose the way things are? 
or the powerful get to use the way things are. And that's, that's an important distinction to make, I think. Because the idea that we can simply ignore facts because they don't exist and we just impose our own values means that we can make, remake the world in our image from the ground up. But I don't think that's possible because I do think facts exist and are a thing. The world will object because there are objects in it. And we can give them purpose, yes, but that doesn't mean that they don't exist in some form or fashion without us without our power working over them. Anything to add? No, you're just foreshadowing a bunch of stuff that Lewis uh, is gonna talk about. Yeah, well, maybe I should have saved it, I don't know. Um, but, but, but again, what Nubigan is saying here is we have this split, facts, values, and what he's going to get into here in a minute is what I posed at the beginning. Why do we feel this tension? If everything is just as valid as the next, why should I give you my version of advice, the gospel? What difference will it make? Will it make a difference? Is it only a difference for you after you die? Is it a difference for you now? Are those mutually exclusive? Why does my coworker think that Christianity is just moral therapy? An option she can have, but something that she can find the exact same thing somewhere else. Why? Well, what we distinguish as values and what we distinguish as facts might not be correct. And then we'll make, um, we're about to make a leap here. Referenced it earlier. How do you get here? If this is the case, if we are diagnosing the situation correctly but this tension we feel in the gospel, why we feel we need to study this for months and help bring a different perspective, bring an old perspective, regain the newsworthiness of the gospel. And if this is the culture we live in where facts and values are separated where they shouldn't, and belief is values and well those aren't facts that's just not news that's just advice how do we get here and my answer would be you can only have this dichotomy in a society that was built on say christian principles and has started to reject them. I don't know if you have a society 
where every option is as equal as the next in, a, in another kind of society. And now the question is, well, is there a part of the world that has or has not been influenced by Christianity? Well, there's obviously pockets, but by and large, on most, con on, on I think every continent, no. <laughs> Something interesting that Newbigin points out that has, has been a lot of the work of one of my professors or the professors at my school. A lot of the Eastern Asian countries in the Middle East, especially those that are now heavily Muslim, ever before Christianity came to the West, those places were dominated by Christianity. And now they're not. I think that's worth, that's worth thinking about. It's really, really interesting. So I'll leave that there, but to prove my point, I don't know if there's a place in the world, a major place in the world that hasn't at some point been influenced by Christianity. Now, we're at a particular moment in the West. Nietzsche predicted the death of God and it has happened. Well, what happens when God dies? That's where we're at. You want to introduce the next section? Yeah. As always, thank you very much for listening to the Belfast Podcast. If you're here on YouTube, please consider subscribing or on your podcast platform. Uh, if you want to rate and review us there, please do. If you want to send us an email, you can email us at thebelfastpodcast.gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram there. You can DM Daniel there. And as I said in the intro, the GoFundMe is in the description. So if you've been, if you've been enriched, if you have been uh, enlightened or helped by anything that we've, we've done in the past few years, please consider donating. Any donation over $5 gets a special uh, access to content I'm going to create as a consequence of the trip to England. Next week, we're going to talk about the cultural mo this cultural moment, the shifts that have happened in our culture, pre-Christian, Christian, and post-Christian, how that affects how we bring the gospel and what it means in our societies. So thank you very much for listening.